Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 32 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which is the fake umbrella term I use for everything I'm doing right now. (laughs) So I don't know what else to call it, but as I am uh, rowing my rowboat into the empty sea, trying to figure out uh, what is next for me, Um, I'm calling everything I do Jesus-centered resources because that's kind of what I do. So hopefully I'll have some updates in the weeks to come about uh, where my uh, little rowboat is taking me. Uh, Some exciting things on the horizon I'd like to let you know about, but um, when those happen, I'll let you know. But if you're new to the podcast, my name is Rick. I'm author of many books, uh, The Jesus-Centered Life, which came out about five years ago is sort of the bottom of the pyramid <laughs> for this podcast. It's a, it's, it's a uh, sort of a, a foundational book. So if you've never picked up a copy of The Jesus-Centered Life and you like this podcast, the two go together really well, you know, like uh, pancakes and syrup or, uh, you know, avocado spread and toast. Um, so pick up a copy of The Jesus-Centered Life if you like this podcast. But in about uh, a little over three weeks, my new daily devotional, The Jesus-Centered Daily, is going to be released, October 6th to be exact. And I have a few, a couple of advanced copies, and then hopefully I'll be getting some more soon. But wow, I just sometimes look at this little, this, this little gem that took me two years to write, and I'm just so proud of it. Um, I'm just so happy that it turned out the way it did. And I was talking to someone the other day about the, the whole role of writing in my life. And writing is not something I do. It's part of who I am. And it actually facilitates my intimate relationship with Jesus. So I'll always be writing because uh, it's, a, it's a really profound way that Jesus and I have a conversation, a, run, a running conversation with each other. And, and the Jesus Center Daily is a result of a two-year running conversation with Jesus. And so I'm so excited for its release. You can learn more about it if you go to the website I built for it. It's called jesuscenteredaily.com. Again, jesuscenteredaily.com. And if you go there, you can download a free sampler of the devotion, and you can watch my intentionally amateurish video on there. (laughs) I knew it was going to be amateurish when I did it. I I intended to do that. but um, and, And I think after watching it, I really succeeded in that goal. So Go head on over to jesuscenteredaily.com and you can experience my amateurish video. And you can also pre-order your copy of the devotional. Also, here's something new. If you would like to join the launch team for this sort of new addition to the family, you can. And as part of that team, you'll get your copy of the Jesus Center Daily before it releases to the public in three weeks. Plus, you'll get $5 off. Plus, you'll get free shipping. So I, I would really love it if you, wanna, if you were to join the launch team for this, for this little devotional. Um, and in return, all, all, all we're really asking is 
that during the week of its release, you just uh, post a review on Amazon. That's it. And the reason why that's important is Amazon has algorithms that um, pay attention to things like reviews and sales in the first week of its release. And when those things start to build up, uh, Amazon's algorithms help to promote, naturally promote the release. So I would love it and be honored if you would join the launch team. So the way you can do that is um, uh, one of a couple of ways. Uh, you can go to the, the, the uh, site for this episode of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Just go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com and then you'll look for season five, episode 32. And on there will be a link to join the launch team. You can also go to the aforementioned JesusCenteredDaily.com and I have a new button on there that you can click on to join the launch team from there. So if you'd rather just go to JesusCenteredDaily.com and join the team there, that'd be great too. So either way, please do jump on there, get your copy early, and then leave a review uh, the week of October 6th. I will be forever indebted to you. So we're 10 episodes into this series I'm calling In His Image, where we're exploring sort of what makes Jesus, Jesus. What, what is his essence? Um, and how are we wired to reflect that essence in our own life? And today we're going to explore pursuit. Pursuit. This is one of my favorite words. If you're around me much, you hear me use this word a lot. Um, I, I found out by accident that I use some words a lot, and I'm unaware of it. Pursuit is one of them. And the young people in our weekly home-based ministry called Pursuing the Heart of Jesus, Not His Recipes, that's its actual name, um, that I found out from them that I use the word profound a lot. I had no idea. <laughs> one of the, I, the way I found out is one of them came up to me after one of our uh, gatherings and said, that she was uh, gathering interest for making a t-shirt order and for, for everyone in the group. And I said, oh, what are you going to put on the t-shirt? She said, profound. And I said, why are you going to put the word profound on there? And she just looked at me with a, with a sly grin and said, because you always say it. <laughs> and I guess I always do. But I, I also use the word pursuit a lot because it captures both, but the way that I experience Jesus in my life, he is always in pursuit of me. And in turn, that motivates my own pursuit of him. So uh, I just mentioned that weekly group that, that meets right now in our backyard, as long as the weather holds. Uh, we've been meeting, this is our seventh year. And uh, since the pandemic hit, we were first on Zoom for about three months. And then um, when some of the restrictions uh, loosened up a little bit, we decided to start meeting in our backyard and it was warm enough to do it. And so we meet socially distanced in our backyard. Kids actually sit in uh, uh, hula hoops that I place on the ground in, a, in advance that are at least six feet away from each other. And they sit in little clumps six feet apart. And we have 20, 25 kids who are in our backyard in this way. So it's, uh, we've, we've, uh, we're just trying to surf the apocalypse here. So um, we've just gone through a transition in this group, though, because a number of those young people that were at the end of their senior year and heading off to college have now all left. And the last of those now freshmen in college to leave was my friend, Logan. He's a 
he headed out to uh, Whitworth College in Washington State. And the starting, the starting date for Whitworth was later than most other colleges. And so Logan was the last one to leave. And um, I'm really missing him. Uh, he, he's been involved in this ministry I lead for more than three years. And he's one of those that was uniquely wired to thrive and enjoy this environment. It's a highly engaging, um, experiential, conversational, discovery-based group where all of the discovery is really, I, I push it all onto the young people and what they discover I interact with. And it leads to the best conversations I've ever had in my life. Um, and Logan is particularly um, wired by Jesus to thrive in this kind of environment. And he has over and over said things that are, are there's this word, profound <laughs> and wonderful. And by that, I mean full of wonder. He often says things that are uh, deep insights into the heart of Jesus based on what we're pursuing that night. Um, in the acknowledgments to the Jesus Center Daily, uh, the last little acknowledgement is to this group. And in fact, I should read it to you. I'll just read to you. I'll just crack this open. It's sitting right next to me right now. So let me crack open the acknowledgments and I'll read you this last one because it's dedicated to those in the group. It says, um, to the Pursuing the Heart group, finally, I'm so indebted to the two dozen teenagers in the home ministry I lead who stunned me over and over with their insights into the heart of Jesus. You have been the most influential theologians in my life for so long. And that's not just rhetoric. It's really true. I've heard so many things from these young people that um, help unlock some of the mystery of Jesus's heart. And it's a mystery only in that he's inviting us with his own sly, sly grin on his face. He's inviting us to go deeper with him. And to do that, he entices us by asking us to pursue the things we don't understand about him. And over and over in this group, Logan has done just that. He has, uh, he has been uh, a theological light in, in my life. And he's also, in particular, wired to see the natural world as the metaphor God intended it to be. I've talked often on the podcast about what Paul said in Romans 1, that, that all of creation really is embedded with the character and personality of God. He did this on purpose so that when we are out in God's creation, we are surrounded by metaphors of his heart if we just pay attention. And um, this is a remarkable thing that Paul says in Romans 1, that, that uh, God in his, in his generosity and his extravagance has planted clues to who he is in all of creation. And so uh, Logan is really wired to experience the natural world metaphorically as God intended it to be. And You'll see why this is really important in just a moment. So since Logan left for school, he's been texting me off and on because I, I've told him I want to stay in connection with him. I want to know what his adventure is like. And the other day, um, I think he had been on campus at Whitworth for just three or four days. He sent me uh, this note. So I'd like to read it to you. I had some time before my first class this morning, so I wandered around. And then the squirrels struck my curiosity. So I started watching and following them. 
just to kind of play with Jesus. And I got this out of it. We as humans are like the squirrels that roam campus. We are comfortable with anyone who is walking by, who's paying no attention to us. Yet it's ingrained in us that those who stop to pay attention are harmful. That's the nature of brokenness. The ones who stop are harmful. So it's no wonder we're afraid to walk toward Jesus, the one who stopped, the one who noticed us when we shouldn't have been noticed. Okay, so I said it's profound, and it is. I, I absolutely love this metaphoric observation that Logan had about squirrels on his campus. And it, I could picture him wandering around the campus following these squirrels around. And what he observed is just so true that as long as, as, long as the squirrels don't think you're pursuing them, then they're, they, they act like a squirrel acts. But as soon as you pay particular attention to them, then they're on alert. Then they're, then they're afraid. Then you're a potential predator. Uh, I, I just love this, this sort of rabbi moment that Logan had. And by rabbi, I mean, Jesus is the one who is helping him to see the meaning of the metaphor around him. And it happened because Logan was willing to pay attention and he was willing to play. Those are really the only two things that, that unlock the, the insights that Jesus wants, us, wants to give to us when we're, when we're especially in his creation if we will pay attention and be willing to play, he will show us things like what he showed Logan about the squirrels. So uh, it's interesting. I looked into this a little bit to, to see what, uh, what this dynamic is like with squirrels. And when squirrels are scared and feel that they're in danger, their first reaction is to remain motionless. You've probably seen this many times. They just stiffen up. You see rabbits do the same thing. <laughs> Now, if the squirrel is on the ground, it will run to a nearby tree and climb to safety. And if it's already in a tree, it'll circle the trunk and press up against the bark tightly with its body. And they, they tend to run in erratic paths um, so that whatever the threat is can't predict where it's gonna go next. So basically, when the squirrel feels like something is paying particular and specific attention to it, the immediate default response it has is fear and that, that it's in danger. And its first uh, defense is to stiffen itself, to be motionless, to take away the movement that the predator might be able to uh, you know, track it with. And then when it feels like the, the, the threat is not going to leave, it, it goes as fast as it can to a tree and climbs to safety. So um, I told Logan after I got his note, I, I wrote him a note back and I told him that his, his observation reminded me of something um, that I read in the book Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I just finished reading this uh, book. It was a number one New York Times bestseller and my daughter Emma had read it oh, about a year ago. And um, I, I just got interested in it and realized we still had the book. So uh, I spent a week reading the book and it was a powerful experience to read, read this story. So I, I wrote a note to Logan to describe for him a scene in the book that I thought 
really reflected his experience with the squirrels. And so this book, uh, Between the World and Me, is written in the form of a letter from Ta-Nehisi Coates to his 14-year-old son. Now, Ta-Nehisi is, a, is an African-American man. He is a, a writer, full-time writer. He's slowly grown in popularity, but for many years, he barely made any money writing, which is typical of writers. I'm a writer too, and it, that's the writer's life. Um, so he's married and has one son, and he lives in uh, New York City. And uh, this book uh, was his fourth book, I think, third or fourth book, and it just became a massive bestseller. And so I mentioned that it's written in the form of a letter to his son, and it's sort of a, a download of his own journey into adulthood as a black man. And uh, it's a harrowing journey. It's a, it's a gut punch of a journey. Um, he describes what it, what it felt like to grow up in a state of constant fear growing up in, in the inner city, uh, inner city Baltimore. And all of the, all of the ways that he uh, had to learn to survive in that environment and how that survival instinct was still with him, even as he, uh, he was a man in his 40s. And so <clears throat> toward the end of the book, and it, it really is this raw, unfiltered account of the terror produced by just growing up black. Toward the end of the book, uh, Coates tells this story of when he traveled abroad for the first time. His wife uh, had gone to Paris alone, and he was kind of like, didn't understand why she was so interested in going to Paris. He had never had desire to travel abroad. But when she came back, um, her stories opened up kind of a new world for him and planted a seed in him of wanting to have the same experience. And so um, eventually he traveled himself to Paris and spent a few weeks there. Um, so uh, in a foreign country, in a major city for the first time, he uh, just explored what life was like in Paris. Um, and he did this um, during the time when he had started to experience some success as a writer. And while he was there, he met uh, a new friend, uh, a Frenchman, who was trying to learn English, conversational English better. And Tanasi Coates was trying to learn conversational French. So they decided to have dinner one night. And they went to one of those, if you've ever been to Paris, there's a bunch of these, or any really major city, they went to one of those uh, little restaurants that only has five or six tables and the food is exquisite and uh, the, the, the atmosphere is intimate. And the two of them enjoyed a fantastic meal and great conversation for an evening. And at the end of their time, when they were walking out of the restaurant, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' new friend asked him if he'd like to see a building nearby that was famous for its architecture. And Tanahasi eagerly agreed to go do that. And so as they're walking outside of the restaurant and heading down an alley to the building, Tanahasi Coates says in his book, um, he describes in his book what was going on inside of him. He realized that his default harm response had kicked in, meaning all of that survival um, uh, default setting that he had adopted growing up kicked in. And he wondered if this man had just tricked him into walking down this alley and was intending to walk him right into a, uh, a, a beating where uh, some thugs were waiting for him to jump, jump him and beat him up. Um, 
he, he wondered if, if that's what in his, in his senses started tingling. Like uh, you're walking down an alley with a person you don't know that well, of course this can't go well. That's what he was thinking inside. And rationally, he knew that this couldn't be true. That this, Irrationally, he, he thought this can't be true, but he couldn't help his own default response, his own freeze. Um, if, you, if, if you think about that squirrel, he, the squirrel senses the threat and he freezes. And that's what happened inside Ta-Nehisi Coates. He just froze because of this, this fundamental uh, belief that if someone was paying attention to him, and invited him to do something like this. And they were walking down an alley to go do it that most likely, almost certainly that person had ill intent toward him. That person was actually a threat and that he should not have let down his guard. So of course, in the story, nothing like this um, happens at all, but it really does remind me of Logan's observation. All of us, we, we don't all have the kind of life experience that ta Coates has. And yet we all have our own pain, our own default uh, freeze setting um, when, when we encounter a threat. We all have this same kind of knee-jerk response to being paid attention to in a particular way. I guess you could say <laughs> we're all squirrels in our own way. Um, all of us see threats everywhere um, because uh, we've been uh, damaged and wounded and hurt relationally. And that, and, and as Logan said, let me just repeat what he said at the end of his observation. Um, he says, that's the nature of brokenness. The ones who stop are harmful. That's our belief when we're broken. So it's no wonder we're afraid to walk toward Jesus, the one who stopped, the one who noticed us when we shouldn't have been noticed. I love what he said there, the one who stopped. That's a great way of describing the heart of Jesus. He is the one who stops and pays attention, in intent, intentional attention to us. So this is, by the way, and this is what I said to Logan at the end of my note, this, this dynamic, this insight that he has about the squirrels is why everything depends on our understanding and trust of the one who is leading us down the alley, right? Um, so in the case of ta Coates, he does not know this French man very well. What he does know of him, there's nothing rational to undergird his belief that this man is leading him into a trap. And yet his default setting obviously is still there. So we first must admit that we have a similar default setting, that we are all squirrels. And the way to overcome it, and by the way, this is exactly the same way that squirrels overcome their fear of human beings, the way to overcome it is to experience the kindness and generosity of the one who has stopped, the one who is paying attention, to experience their heart for the good, good heart that it is. So everything in our relationship with Jesus hinges on our taste of his heart, our, um, our ongoing um, assessment of, a, of his heart, I guess you could say it, or ongoing experience of his kind and gracious and tender and loving heart. Jesus has so much to overcome in us, all of our default threat responses. And his pursuit of us, therefore, is kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, 
You know, it's a good thing that he is pursuing us. But when he pursues us, our, our threat response mechanisms kick in. So I thought it would be interesting to explore three stories that highlight his pursuit and to um, spotlight not just what Jesus does in his pursuit, but how the people in these encounters respond. I think you'll see a lot of squirrel in these stories. I think you'll see a lot of squirrel. <laughs> but it's important then to see how Jesus overcomes some of that natural default setting in the people that he's pursuing, because it will help us to understand ourselves and maybe how we can be the kind of squirrels who once they have seen, seen enough of the heart of Jesus, that instead of standing motionless or racing to our own tree for refuge, instead we turn to him and we cautiously creep up to him and maybe eventually eat out of his hand. Wouldn't that be great? Well, let's first explore a story from Mark chapter 5. We're going to read Mark 5, 21 through 33. And this is the story. This is a complex story. It's one of my favorite stories about Jesus in the Bible because it's a, uh, it, there's some complexity to it. So Jesus is asked to raise Jairus's daughter from the dead. Um, and on his way to, to, to trying to keep her from dying in the first place, uh, he stops when he shouldn't. Um, it, they're in a rush. Time is everything, and he stops. And he stops because a woman touches the edge of his cloak. So let's go ahead and read this story. And then I, I want you to think as I'm reading this, how is Jesus pursuing the people he's pursuing in this story? And how are the people themselves responding to his pursuit? What, is, uh, what can you see in their response that is like the squirrel? So here we go. Mark 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Well, Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Well, immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of her terrible condition. Now, Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, um... Look, this, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering's over. 
Well, while he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and he asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. And holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kom, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. And they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. What an amazing story that is. And I, I told you it's complex. And we, we know this story. Um, but this is one of those that is, is just inviting us to step into the shoes of somebody who was there to experience what this must have felt like um, from the perspective of the crowd, from the perspective of the woman with the, the uh, long-term medical problem who finds healing from the perspective of Jairus, uh, from the perspective of uh, Peter, James, and John who witnessed this firsthand. There's so many different perspectives we can look at this story from, but I thought it would be interesting to first um, peer through the lens of the woman who had the, uh, this, what we call the issue of blood, the constant bleeding she'd had for 12 years. So it's important to um, slow down and pay attention to what life must have felt like for her. So 12 years of constant bleeding, she can't stop it. And in addition to the, just the fear that such a medical condition like this would produce in you, that you have every single day for 12 years, but she'd also spent everything she had with doctors trying to, to find a cure for this and had not found one. So for 12 years, she had thrown everything at this problem and trying to beat back the fear in her life of this medical condition she had. And she had bankrupted herself doing it and was no closer, um, in fact, was worse than she had started off because of the treatments that she had been given. So hope was not something that was active in her life. I mean, hope had been crushed over and over and over again as each succeeding doctor tried and failed to fix her problem and she got poorer and poorer. But she heard about Jesus. Something that she heard about Jesus awakened that dead hope in her, but she couldn't hope too much she couldn't hope in a way that was frontal. She didn't want to approach him in an obvious way, not just because she was an outcast in society because of her medical condition, which is, by the way, true. So, so her hope had been destroyed on multiple levels. She was, she was even excised from proper community because the people at this time believed if you had a medical problem like this. It was the result of some kind of secret sin that God was punishing you for. So people that, that in, encountered problems like this, the, the reason uh, for these problems that the culture said to them was because of something wrong with you, something fundamentally wrong with you. 
something hidden about you and we're not going to associate with you. So she had no hope on this level either. And yet somehow, some way, she scraped together enough hope to sneak up around Jesus and say to herself, not to anyone else, if I could just touch him, maybe I can be healed. And that little widow's might of faith that she had, that if she could touch Jesus, she could find healing. Um, when it, it came, when there was no conscious interaction between the two of them. I mean, Jesus did not know who touched him. So she touched him without even asking for his help and assistance. She touched him simply believing that if she touched this man, she might find healing. And healing did go out of Jesus. He knew it when it happened. He knew that somebody had scraped together enough faith to believe in who he is and what he can do. And he wanted to know who it was. But like a squirrel, her natural threat response kicks in. All she wants, she, you can just imagine her as like a, a, a squirrel um, coming up to you when you're sitting on the stoop of, of your home. And there maybe you have some peanuts uh, scattered around your feet. And you're looking the other way and one of them comes racing up, grabs one and goes racing off again. <laughs> That's this woman. She grabs a peanut from the stoop and she tries to race off without him stopping to pay attention to her. So she doesn't want him to stop and pay attention to her because just like the squirrel, if he stops to pay attention to me, what good can come from that? That represents a threat. So even though Jesus says, who touched my robe? Because he knew power had gone out of him. No one speaks up at the start and his disciples are confused because, well, Jesus, everyone's touching you. But this was very important to Jesus. He knew that Jairus's daughter was on the verge of death. He knew that they were hurrying to get to the home before that happened. He knew that Jairus was racked with anxiety and um, was filled with hope now that Jesus was hurrying to his home. And here Jesus stops to try to pursue this woman. What's happening? What's going on inside of Jairus? Why are you doing this? You're screwing it all up. And his disciples are like, Jesus, why are, you, why are you even asking this question? Why, why are we stopped here? Uh, we need to get to Jairus's house. But Jesus is adamant. He wants to know who it is that touched him. He keeps looking around to see who had done it. He is not going to leave until he outs this woman. He, has, he, he fixes his eyes on her when she finally, it says the frightened woman who was trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, meaning she knew something had gone out of her. And her immediate thought is, oh, maybe I wasn't supposed to do that. Maybe, maybe he's going to be mad at me for getting my healing in a sneaky way. Maybe I'm going to be punished now and, I, and the healing will go away. She immediately thinks of him in a threatening way. So she comes and falls to her knees in front of him. She's essentially saying, have mercy on me. If I did something wrong, please forgive me. Um, she falls on her knees and she tells him what she had done. So in that explanation, um, what Jesus hears is a woman with a 12-year bleeding problem with no hope and no money 
who invested all of that hope, whatever little bit of hope she had left, she invests it in him. And she sneaks up and steals the peanut <laughs> from his feet. And he looks at her and he says, daughter, daughter, what a tender way to address this woman who's been excluded from society. Daughter, your faith has made you well. He didn't say, my power to heal has made you well. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Now, this encounter he has with this woman, who is like the squirrel, um, shows us how much Jesus not only wants to offer her the peanut she needs, <laughs> I feel funny saying that, but to use the metaphor, to offer her what she most needs, what she most wants, but he also wants a change in the relationship she has with him. She wants to move, he wants to move her from her default threat response to him to an openness, a relaxedness, peace in her approach to him. He wants her to leave at peace, not just because she's received healing, not just because the physical suffering she's been under is now gone away, but the, the social and emotional and psychological suffering she's been experiencing, he wants those to be over too. And the way he does that is he generously offers his focused presence, his pursuit. In, in Jesus's pursuit of her in this uh, public square, he's telling her, I'm paying attention. I see you. Who you are and what you've done matters to me. And now that you have shown me what you have done, I delight in you. Far from judging you, I delight in the, in the little gift of faith you, you, you offered to me and in return received healing. It's your faith, woman, that has made you well. It is your act of courage. You're scraping together of the little hope you had left and investing in me. It is your investment. It is your courage that has made you well. And now I want your soul to be well as well. I want you to be able to, in the future, from this point on, come up to my hand and take the peanut from my hand to feel the stroke of my hand on your head. I want us to have a close relationship a relaxed relationship. That's what Jesus hopes for in this encounter. And later with, uh, with Jairus, who's now in heartbreak because he learns that his daughter has passed away during this delay, Jesus, so generous, so kind, um, and with a bit of a smile on his face, goes, and that sounds funny, but I, I believe it's true. He goes to Jairus's house and he says, why is all this commotion and weeping going on? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. He treats this whole situation in a lighthearted way, which must have seemed so odd, not just to his disciples, but to Jairus himself. And it certainly seemed ridiculous to the crowd. They laughed at him. They're, they're grieving Jairus's daughter, but he says this ridiculous thing, and it's so ridiculous that they laugh at him. So he makes them all leave. Why? Because they're not operating in faith as this woman with the issue of blood just did. She offers her little bit of hope 
and finds healing. These people mock who Jesus is and doubt what he can do. And so Jesus says, I, I can't have you around. You're not operating out of faith, so you need to leave. And he clears the room. And he holds a little girl's hand and tells her to get up. And she does. And then he, and he, then he tells Jairus to, to give her something to eat. And that's in a way because probably she's hungry, <laughs> but also to prove she really is alive now. As someone who can eat something and swallow it is really alive. She's not a ghost. So, so here again, um, the, the, we, we see that this, this sort of threat response that people have that in a way, when somebody laughs at you or mocks you, it's, it's because they don't want to enter into relationship with you. They want to keep you at a distance. So these people, instead of moving toward Jesus, when he says this, this remarkable thing, they move away from him, um, by mocking him and laughing at him. And, uh, so they freeze <laughs> and uh, who knows what, what Jairus is thinking when he sees all of this. It's, it, it's just the most remarkable thing. The roller coaster of emotions you're going through. My daughter's maybe I've hope because Jesus is coming. Now I have no hope because Jesus stopped. Now Jesus says he's going to come anyway. Now he drives away the crowds. Now my daughter who's clearly passed away is lifted out of her deathbed and she's alive again. Wow. Um, that is one exhausting emotional day for Jairus. Um, but <clears throat> again, this tenderness of Jesus paying attention in pursuing Jairus, ultimately pursuing um, this little girl, uh, uh, his pursuit, his intentionality is always unlocking freedom from captivity in the people around him. But because there's power in that pursuit, power in him stopping to pay attention, um, it can be threatening to us. Let's uh, take a couple of other ones real quick. Um, one is in Mark 12. I mentioned that, that um, uh, the widow's might. I thought it'd be interesting to just go to that story real quick. It's in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 is where it starts. Here we go. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. But then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. And here we see a picture of Jesus um, intentionally studying those around him. And how is he studying them? He wants to understand their hearts. He, he watches their actions and what they say to um, get below the surface with them. He is always studying people. In this little scene, Jesus reminds me of Sherlock Holmes, whose great superpower is, is really paying ridiculous attention to others and their motivations and their behavior and what inferences you can make because of it. Here, Jesus is studying this woman with an in intensity that, um, that unlocks her heart. And he is overwhelmed by the uh, courage and the faith that this woman has. The, the, this, this faith that goes all in 
even though all she has is nothing. <laughs> she gives her nothing. Um, and Jesus sees this as everything. This is what being pursued by Jesus looks and feels like. When, when he turns his attention to us and stops to pay attention to us, our threat response says, oh, he's going to see all of the dirt and ugly in me. Uh, I don't want him to stop and pay attention like that to me because he's going to see all the things that I've been trying to hide all these years. And yet we know, we get a picture of his heart here. When he stops to, to um, notice this woman, what he notices is her incredible heart. And then he speaks it out. He gathers his disciples and he says, look, look at this woman. I'm sure none of you noticed her, but I do. Because look at what she has done. She has given more than anyone else today. Because even though she's poor, she's given everything she has. What she's done is live in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the people that are honored are those who give everything, no matter if they have nothing. <laughs> and Jesus is pointing out to his disciples that this woman is living like a child in the kingdom of God. And he, and he can't help but respect her. Now think about this for a second. What if Jesus, when he stops to notice you, his reaction is awe and respect? Have you ever felt the awe and respect of Jesus as he gazes on you? I can tell you he has over and over again. If he has noticed this about the widow, he has noticed your many hidden, tiny, um, secret acts of courage. He has noticed how your heart played out with great courage when no one else notices. Uh, all of those secret ways that you've sacrificed or persevered or given when you had nothing to give. He notices those things. And right now, when he sees those things, maybe he's calling his friends in the kingdom of God to gather around him and say, look, look, look at what he's doing. Look at what she's doing right now. That is amazing. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. What that, what my daughter or my son is doing right now is what the kingdom of God is all about. Now let's flip back in Mark to, to Mark chapter 10 and do one more before we close off here. Mark chapter 10, Jesus and the and what we call this, the Jesus and the rich young ruler. So this starts in verse 17. Let's go ahead and read it. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him and he knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. Well, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Now here Jesus stops to pay attention to the squirrel of the rich young ruler. And at first, 
um, he's relaxed and easy because he's confident that um, Jesus will be no threat to him, that his question has already been answered in his own head. When he asks him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He already has a long bullet list of things he's done that he knows has, have achieved that. He's the best of the best. Nobody has the bullet list he, he has. So when he asks this question, he's hoping that Jesus simply reiterates what he thinks he already knows. But Jesus stops and looks at this young man, and it says he had a great love for him in the moment. He had a tender love for this man and how hard he was striving. So he gives him a good gift. There's still one thing you don't have. Go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. He's saying, okay, there's one thing you lack. Give all that stuff that you've invested in. Give it all away. Give it to people who really need it. And I'm inviting you to, have, to, to uh, experience treasure. Come follow me. I'm going to give you myself in return for what you give up. But the man goes away sad because he has so much. Now, does Jesus expect him to simply leave everything behind? Well, his first disciples did. So maybe. But when the man goes away sad, it's not such a bad outcome there either. Because the fact that he's sad means instead of angry, for instance, at the uh, ridiculous request Jesus has given him, the man is sad because he wants to follow Jesus. But the price of following Jesus seems too high. We'll see what happens in this man's life. But in this case, when the squirrel freezes, he's walking away sad. He's retreating to his tree now because Jesus now feels like a threat instead of a friend. But the, the fact that Jesus has planted this interaction in this man's life, I, I, and, and it's produced sadness in this man as he walks away, I think the dissonance created by this encounter stays with this man and, and uh, is, is like a magnet drawing him back to his real heart's desire. Now, who knows if he ever does really s sell everything you have, give it to the poor and find Jesus again and begin following him with his other disciples. We don't know the outcome of this story. But in this case, Jesus stopping to pay attention to him actually is a threat. It's a threat to the deathly way of living that this man has adopted. It's a threat to the cancer that this man has ingested. Um, it's a threat in the same way a surgeon's scalpel is a threat to that cancer. So yes, sometimes we freeze and try to be motionless in the face of the surgeon's knife coming at us. But what we experience um, through, and, I, and I, my hope is what this young man experiences, is that in the, in the freedom that that surgical knife gives us from the cancer that has invaded our body and our soul, in that freedom, we come to experience the kind pursuit of Jesus for what it really is. He, Jesus does not pursue us because he's empathetic. Jesus pursues us because he wants to love us. And love desires the freedom of the beloved above all else. And in this story,
um, the, the frozen squirrel. Um, I, my hope is that this frozen rich young ruler relaxes and comes back to the hand of Jesus once he realizes that the intent behind what Jesus has done is love. So um, it's interesting that our experience of Jesus is to stop and pay attention. Um, it's almost, uh, it, you know, that the name of Jesus is lifted up throughout scripture, that you know, names are important in scripture, not just Jesus's name, which is uh, the importance of the power of his name is, is mentioned over and over and over again in, in the New Testament, but also the names of others. Uh, in the ancient Hebrew culture, a name was not just a label, it was attached to your essence. Yeah. And, and if you think about it now, we, we treat this the same way, even though our names are labels, they really are sort of the, the fishing line that we follow back to our essence. That name represents who we are. So to be pursued is to have our name known uh, by Jesus um, and not just known because he knows, oh yeah, that's Rick, but Rick attaches to my essence. So um, I think it's interesting that, that um, in, our, in the body of Christ, in the community of believers, we are living out the very things that Jesus is doing in these three stories. We are stopping to pay attention to others which can feel like a threat to others, but we're stopping to pay attention for the sake of their freedom. We're stopping to pay attention, not just to their name, but to the essence behind that name. Um, if people cannot find freedom outside of community. It's just not possible. We are the means of their freedom from captivity. We are the ones who are living out Jesus' mission in their life. There's a clinical psychologist named Todd, Todd Essig who said this, introspection is a closed system. Patterns of growth only emerge by opening yourself to input from others. Can you imagine doing a search on an iPhone with no network con connection? Even the best search strategy, for instance, introspection alone, would be terribly limited. So too with cognition, feeling, and desire. And what he's saying here is that we would never search without a network connection. We wouldn't find much. We need connection to our wider network in order to understand what is delightful and admired and respected about who we are. This is the role of the body of Christ, to slow down, to stop, to pay attention, even at risk that people will feel threatened when we do, for the purpose of drawing out, reflecting back their innate beauty their innate reflection of Jesus. So those of us who represent the network connection, we, we call ourselves the body of Christ. And those of us who represent that connection to, to those whose uh, interior lives are lonely and afraid, like the woman who touches the cloak of Jesus, those of us who represent that, we can be Jesus to these people by simply asking questions that, maybe seem like prying to our sort of risk-averse sensibilities. We don't ask good questions or reflect back true things very often about people because it's too risky. We're afraid that, that we'll overstep our boundaries and that we'll make them feel awkward or uncomfortable, and so we don't do it. 
And if you think about it, the reason we don't do it is really all about us. We're afraid to feel awkward or exposed or like we might hurt somebody. We're afraid of our own pain. And therefore, we don't pursue people, stop to notice them the way Jesus does, even when they freeze like a squirrel. We say, oh, they froze. I better not do this. Jesus doesn't follow that practice. When the squirrel freezes, he continues to move, to entice, to draw, to, to show himself as tender and kind. So I often ask people lots of follow-up questions about their story. Um, and sometimes when I tell people about some of my stories of, of pursuing people, you know, sort of using cues from the things that they share to take the conversation deeper. I do this all the time. And when I tell stories about this, um, other people, usually their first response is that I must get a lot of awkward and pushback responses. I must find a lot of people who recoil from this. But I always tell them the opposite is true. I've been doing this for decades. And I think that most people are so starved for someone who will pursue their story as if they actually care about it that I've never, ever had someone balk at my pursuit. So my encouragement to you today is to pursue people, the frozen squirrels in your life, um, in a way that, that feels maybe a little awkward, maybe a little bit over the line. Get past your own fears to be the body of Christ for others, to live out Jesus' heart toward others in the same way that he stopped in that public square and risked this woman feeling awkward and risked Jairus's daughter actually dying so that he could pay attention to something beautiful in this woman's heart. Be Jesus to the people around you in your life. Don't balk at your pursuit simply because it feels awkward. Um, you will be surprised at how people open their story to you when you have the courage to pursue. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Um, again, if you want to join the launch team for the Jesus Center Daily, just head on over to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're going to look for season five, episode 32, and there will be a link to the launch team there. Or you can go to jesuscenterdaily.com, and I have a new button on there that you can click on to join the launch team there if you want. If you just want to head over to jesuscenterdaily.com, you can do that as well. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again 